welcome to this TransUnion podcast. By way of introduction, I'm Sam Welch and I run the Strategic Accounts Programme across the region. TransUnion are a global information and insights company. Our mission is providing information for good. In simple terms, we help businesses across all sectors leverage our data, solutions and software to enable them to make accurate and reliable decisions. We work with our clients to not only help solve their challenges, but provide market insights to identify new growth opportunities. These podcasts are produced to help listeners better understand the ever-changing data and technology landscape. This episode is taken from a panel discussion that took place at our recent TransUnion Summit. Our summit theme was future, with TU squarely at the centre of that. As well as the panel, it featured some great talks, including a keynote by futurist Brett King, a deep dive into building services and products for Gen Z, and analysis of the current data breach landscape, to name just a few. Filmed in front of a live audience, the panel discussion, which was hosted by Sasha Twining, a renowned television and radio anchor, explores topics around digital innovation, growth opportunities and risks that we are seeing in the market. I hope you enjoy it and find the themes interesting and they resonate with the challenges and opportunities you are currently dealing with. I look forward to speaking to you soon. Let me first of all introduce those that we have in the studio. Jonathan Baum, non-executive director, formerly of Lloyd's. Good to have you here. Good morning. Um, sitting next to you in the middle, Shell Deep, TU Chief Product Officer. Good Welcome. Morning. And then next to you as well, Sam Welch, uh, Strategic Account Sales Director. It's lovely to have the three of you here, very much on a TU sense, and then very much on a client sense. Um, Simon Taylor at Barclay Card. Good morning, Simon. Where, where have we got you this morning? Where are you? Morning. Um, yes, apologies, I can't be there in person. I'm in, uh, in London, in um, glorious Canary Wharf this morning. So, I, I, was, I was rather hoping to see may, maybe a nice sort of uh, cat walking past the background or, or your bookshelf. <laughs> I can try a filter at some point if, if, uh, if, if needed. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, look, it's good to have uh, all of you here to sort of chew over these issues. Now, what we thought we would do is sort of uh, start big at sort of uh, on the economy and then start to dive down into some of the, the risks, the challenges, but also the possibilities ahead and also keeping the client and the consumer at the very, very heart of this. So let's talk about the state, the current state of the economy, where we are at the moment. We'll talk about the future and what's going to happen coming up. But let's just talk from your particular perspective where you think the economy and the industry is. Jonathan, let me start with you. Well, I think uh, I'd start by saying we're in a lot better place than anybody <laughs> thought we would be 18 months ago. Certainly in terms of, you know, unemployment is much better than people had feared. And, and generally, the return to consumer spending is, is, is more positive than people had thought. And I think that's giving people consideration in terms of maybe having retrenched slightly on the lending agenda, how far to then go back into growth mode, it's, it's very much the topic of the day. Does that surprise you? Does it surprise me? I think you need to be prepared for all outcomes. I think, you know, we were all thinking that there would be higher unemployment, but the level of government support has been absolutely unprecedented. And I think, you know, that, you know, that, that was perhaps a surprise, but, you know, and then you see the benefit in the economy. Okay. Um, Shell, what about you? I am pleasantly surprised with the way how we're seeing recovery in the economy. Uh, obviously, as you talked about spending, in fact, uh, there are a few interesting phenomena we're seeing in the economy, which is uh, retail sales is going up in spite of the challenges in logistics. And uh, people have started to try go back to normal life. They're, they're dining out, they're going for entertainment. 
we have a little bit to thanks to James Bond for uh, the movie uh, No Time <laughs> to Die. But so entertainment ways, spend has gone up 28% year over year in October, which is amazing and uh, compared to October 2019. In fact, some of these stats were published by Barclay Cards. <laughs> and uh, and it's great to see that spending has gone up by 14% in October of this year compared to October of 2019. So yeah, all, all signs are positive and I am surprised, but it's a really pleasant surprise. A pleasant surprise. Okay, that positivity. You're, you're grinning there, Sam. So do you, do you agree? I'm, I'm grinning. Yeah, 100% agree. But um, I was recently on a flight to Dubai and you know, it was packed there and back. Um, so, I mean, everyone has really wanted to kind of open up again. Travel and retail, entertainment, all of that. That has come back and we're seeing that through the spending uh, on the credit cards and, and further lending so 100 percent all right simon would you echo that at barclay card yeah i'd love to say something different but um yeah completely agree i i think to, to jonathan's point um all the models and all the predictions in the world probably couldn't have forecast uh the, the level of government support that's meant we can come out of this uh, pandemic and out of the various lockdowns in what is a yeah great situation really from a, a spending point of view and it looks like a you know strong recovery that's hopefully here to stay but that is my next point you you say hopefully here to stay you're not saying is here to stay. you're saying hopefully and i wonder how much this sort of um uh you know con positive consumer attitude of people going out and spending um is is driving this because let's face it we know you know we're all human <laughs> we know we've been desperate to get sort of back out there and, and and spend money and be with our friends again we've been desperate to do that but also then you know you're talking about the government support you know how much is that masked actually what the you know the, the true state is what, what do you think jonathan well I'm not sure I'd use the word mast. I mean, I think it has underpinned, you know, the, the, the economy. There are still some worry beads in terms of inflation, and I'm sure, I'm sure we're going to get to, um, you know, s some of the forward-looking views in, in due course. But we're seeing, you know, the increased demand in the economy, so pick-up of spend on credit cards. We're seeing, you know, particularly in the mortgage space, you know, the lenders have moved back into f supporting first-time buyers. That's underpinned by a very solid... Uh, performance in terms of asset prices. So there is a degree of confidence there that people are building on. Mm. Yeah, Sam? I think, uh, I mean, clearly there's so much pent-up demand. And yeah. Simon's point is, is it here to stay? Um, there is a concern. I mean, and looking ahead, clearly that was that government spending. We're going to have to pay for it at some point in the future. So how is that going to play out over the next you know, 5, 10, 20 years? What do you think? Yeah, because, well, you it? know, you mentioned James Bond, and that is actually, it's one of the things that there's been to sort of get people back out again. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then we're also seeing polarisation, right? So we do this consumer pulse survey to, have an, to understand the impact on consumer finance. And we're seeing that more than 50% of consumers are actually quite optimistic. And they do think that it is going to be a positive spin for them because they have built their savings over the period of lockdowns, right? And they haven't really had much avenues to spend so far. Savings rates are, are really high, but there is still a quarter of a population which is struggling financially, right? So which is seeing that, you know, there, would, there is already an adverse impact or there is going to be an anticipated adverse impact to them. I think David also talked about it earlier that, you know, there are one-fifth of the consumers that feel that they won't be able to pay at least a bill or a loan obligation. So there is both sides of the equation and both of those things are happening in the economy. And, you know, as we grow... 
and look at how we provide these products and solutions to our consumers, we need to think about both these aspects. Yeah, because it's all very easy to get sort of almost carried away by the gloss of, you know, you see busy restaurants, you see, you know, you said your, your flight was, was, yeah. was busy, but that is absolutely not the same for everyone. I mean, are you seeing that divide, Simon, um, sort of uh, widening or, you know, how, how do you sort of see that going? Um, I, I think one of the key points, uh, just to come back to something that was said there around savings. So one of the key points will be this transition from savings to spend. You know, at some point next year, people are going to stop depleting the savings they've built up. And then there will be a choice as to whether they continue their spending you know, with borrowing and, and out of disposable income, particularly as disposable income becomes pushed. Um, I think in terms of the, the polarisation, so there are various spend categories that are higher than they were pre-pandemic. So it's really interesting to, to note, you know, supermarket and eating out type spends are, are higher. There are various other areas, not just travel, but other areas that haven't quite recovered in the same way. So what I think is going to be really interesting over the, the next kind of 12, 18 months is whether those trends are here to stay and we become a bit more like, um, a bit more like the continent in some ways around spending more of our disposable income on, on food and, and kind of family entertainment. Um, or whether those things will tail off and people will go back to kind of previous spending, you know, travel, holidays, um, clothes, and, and start spending less on food. And, of course, the other dynamic that sits under that, which I'm sure we'll come to, is are people actually spending more on, on, on food and, and entertainment, or is the, are those things just costing more and actually they're buying the same amount of, same amount of goods but actually paying more for them? So I think, I think that dynamic between savings, increased prices, and inflation – will be a key as to whether people carry on this spending recovery. So you, you're almost suggesting that there'll be some sort of pivot sometime next year where it's like going from saving to spending. Um, you said mid next year, what, end quarter two, beginning Q3? Um, it's probably very difficult to predict, but I guess, I guess people are probably in a position where they've got levels of savings that they never envisaged having, particularly when, you know, when you're first told that you've got to stay at home and everyone's going to lose their job, uh, and then to find that you come out of it nine, 12 months later, probably with savings that you've never imagined you'd have, it's whether people start to spend those savings or whether they take this as an opportunity to sit on those savings. You know, we're often told by, by you know, financial journalists and, and financial planners to keep various amounts of months of salary in savings, which a lot of people have never been able to do. And they may now have been able to do that. So I think there will come a point where perhaps, you know, they've treated themselves to some big items um, from those savings and then decide, actually, now this is the cushion I want to keep. This is my new expectation. Um, and whether they then turn to credit again um, or whether they just, you know, live within a new kind of disposable income savings balance, that that probably will be kind of middle of next year, I, I suspect, before we see that um, play out. Yeah, or, or maybe even sort of start building up pensions or, or, or other funds as well, mm. taking advantage of those sort of things. Jonathan? I, I, I think it's slightly unfair also to ask when the pivot's going to occur. Uh, of because, course it is. But... I mean, that's your job, I know. But there, 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 there are clearly, you know, there are some areas where, where there are strong savings and there are still some consumers that don't have Absolutely. any savings. And I think also then the impact of rising fuel prices, petrol... Uh, increase in tax is going to squeeze some of those lower income households 
that perhaps don't have the savings. So you'll see perhaps there the drift back towards uh, greater utilization of credit. Backed, I think, by greater supply of credit as the suppliers become more confident in the economy. We'll probably come on to talking about, you know, the, the, the whole environment and the, and the context mm. to, to other issues that, that could play in as far as risks go a little later. But let's Let's just concentrate on where the growth could come from over the next, well, I'm going to take almost from Simon's cue there of like the next 12 to 18 months and sort of like moving forward over that that next period. Where's that going to come from, Michelle? What do you think? So it is going to come from savings, but at yep. the same time, this, this positive sentiment is also helping drive demand for credit because uh, that is when consumers think that they can take more leverage and then they, they would be able to pay it back. Uh, and we are seeing already that the demand is coming back. For mortgages, obviously, you know, it had a different uh, market altogether with a few contributory factors there, uh, which were obviously the lower interest rates. People wanted to go and move to bigger houses, which is still there. Stamp duty holiday did pay a part, but, you know, interestingly, even after it has ended, the growth for mortgage is still there. Interestingly, if you, if you just look at mortgages, the sales have gone, uh, gone up by like 15% if you look at you know, last five years of average and mortgages went up by 30%, which is really good. But at the same time, we're seeing the demand for unsecured credit is coming back as well. Yes. But what we're not seeing is that the supply is not keep, keeping pace with the, the way demand is coming back. So that is where pockets of opportunities are. Uh, and to be able to identify which consumers can lend, can be lent more safely and more responsibly, and at the same time to protect consumers, right? I think these two things go hand in hand as to, you know, how do we protect consumers, but at the same time meet the needs of the increased demand that's coming for credit on the back of this positive consumer sentiment. And I think it'd be remiss not to talk about buy now, pay later, given yeah. the yeah. significant growth that we're seeing. And by the end of 2023, I think the market, UK market size is expected to double. Um, I mean, that has absolutely ballooned um, more and faster than anyone would have ever expected. Um, and it's, it's led to traditional lenders looking at that and, and thinking how they play, uh, have parts play there. So to Shell's point, along a long, strong supply of credit, that's there. And it's just how it's responsible lending. You know, and and so what areas do you see the growth in buy now, pay later coming? What, what particular sectors or, or across it's the cr- board? Across or? the board. I think what we are seeing as well is where it was lower ticket items, like pair of trainers, for example, this is now moving in towards the, the couple of grand bigger ticket items, um, which again is a, hugely popular. We just clearly, uh, we all have a responsibility to make sure that um, it's the right lending to the right people. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, when you, you know, if you just put buy now, pay later into Google, uh, which I, I, I'm sure you will do quite, quite regularly just to see, you know, what sort of news articles are, are coming up on it. And you will have consumer journalists saying this needs to be regulated. Actually, it's not just consumer journalists saying it. Even, even you know, sections of the industry will be sort of saying, you know, th- this needs a, a little bit more regulation, a bit more framework. So how is that going to play into it? What, what do you anticipate, Jonathan? I mean, I think regulation will come, I, you know, you can sometimes think of it about borrowing and sometimes think of it just as a payment mechanism. And, you know, the, the, the data that we've seen suggests that there are, you know, different profiles of consumers using buy now, pay later, right from kind of super prime customers right down across the spectrum. And they're using it for slightly different purposes. So I think understanding the, the, the segmentation is quite key in terms of, um, you know, moving forward in that space. I think also what you will see is more of the kind of, dare I say, the traditional lenders looking at the growth of buy now, pay later and looking at how to build some of that functionality 
into or on top of their existing product sets. Yeah. I think, um, go, go on, Shell. I was basically say, you know, this is being driven by consumer behavior and how consumer behavior is changing, right? So we're seeing, as Jonathan said, that, you know, it's, it's across the spectrum. It's not just high-risk consumers. It's also low-risk. But the consumers who are low-risk and super-prime, they're actually looking for convenience. And that's why they use buy now, pay later, not because they have need for credit. But at the same time, there's this other spectrum of consumers, and that is where regulators are more concerned. So can one vehicle then deal with both those two different types of, of consumer? Is that, you know, is, is, that, is that fair on the particular product? Well, I think underneath that vehicle, you need to understand the affordability, exactly. the right. indebtedness and the income of, of the customer. And that's, that's being developed yeah. and, and regulation will follow as well. Too. Yeah, and that's what lending products have done for decades, that you know, they, they do serve the entire population, but then we need to make sure that we're serving the right segments with the right proposition. Mm. Simon, let me bring you in on this one. What's, uh, what's, what's the Barclay card view of buy now, pay later? Um, I mean, obviously, I would say that one vehicle can serve both needs. Um, that goes without saying. But I think, um, no, I mean, I'd be lying if I, I didn't say we, you know, we watch very closely. And, and as with a lot of traditional lenders, you know, a lot of plans in, in, in this place. I, I actually think buy now, pay later is more of a customer experience and, and, and user experience thing than a, a lending tool. I mean, it, it, we've seen the trend over the last few years, actually, of, of lending heading towards people not wanting to revolve balances for, for years and years and years, but actually wanting to buy something and pay it off over a controlled period of time. I think the advantage that Buy Now, Pay Later has at the moment is that the user experience and the setup of those products is, is, is almost forces that, that behavior. Whereas, obviously, with traditional credit cards, people often start off with the best of intents but then take longer to pay something off. And, and that's when perhaps interest becomes, you know, interest becomes a bigger part of it. So I think the, the big area for, for the traditional lenders is how do we blend the, the convenience, the lending power, the, the fact that we're in a lot of people's wallets already with the, the user experience and flexibility of buy now, pay later. Um, and to the points that were made on the panel there, I think areas like affordability and, and giving customers confidence that, you can afford this within your uh, existing line of credit. It's not you're not taking extra credit over and over again in different places. I think that's a, a very key point um, to, to how buy now pay later can be successful um, and, and kind of move with the regulations that are inevitable. Mm. Jonathan, you were listening intently to that. I agree. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you know it, it is absolutely about customer experience and convenience for many of the users of uh, buy now pay later there are some consumers that will view it as access to sources of credit that they may not otherwise have mm -hmm. and then there are others that are purely looking at it as a different way of paying for the purchases that they would have otherwise made and and it's really i think you know going to be important to understand the different types of consumer within the buy now pay later population rather than trying to just generalize that you know it's a certain risk profile or a certain demographic that are attracted to the product because it's it's a broad base that are using that product and growing rapidly i think there's an education piece as well uh, yeah. for consumers and making sure that they are fully aware that that is a, a form of credit a line of credit um and and we, we talk about this later on with a gen z um it's making sure that just they're, they're fully aware of what they're getting into.
Yeah, uh, absolutely. And do you, uh, what sort of impact on, on growth for different sectors do you think regulation will actually have on it? I mean, how, how is that going to shift? Because you're talking about it being a huge area. I forget the statistic that you gave yeah, at the beginning. To, the UK should double by the end of 2023. Okay, and then you put regulation into that. What then happens? Yeah, and uh, I mean, it, it is, a, I say, just an, a form of credit. We're working with uh, the regulators and other industry bodies um, to, to really make sure that there's the right approach um, to this. Um, so I, I think yeah, regulation will catch up. Um, and as long as that education is there, as I say, what the consumer knows that is a line of credit, um, I, I think that growth will continue. I, I think we're too far down this concept of the consumer experience to actually kind of come back from where yeah. we are now. They, they like think, it too yeah. much already. Yeah, so I think that need for education and awareness is really important because, you know, as you said, a lot of consumers actually think that it is a payment vehicle rather than any sort of credit. Mm. Uh, there is a need for convenience and that needs to be served. I guess we need to see when the regulations come into it that doesn't get impacted, that consumers are still able to access it with the same level of convenience. I think there might be some impact there. But at the same time, if consumers are aware and are educated, then you know it might not be impacted, but some part of buy now, pay later has actually been offered to consumers for more than decades. Installments yeah, and loans on cards have been there forever. And that is not going to impact the higher ticket items. I think where regulators are concerned is loan stacking and where, it, where there is lack of transparency. And I think that transparency is needed to protect consumers at the end, to make sure they don't overextend themselves. Do you mean with, with different providers where it's not cross-checked? Exactly, it's right, right. Because lines. Yeah. there are multiple providers in the market, yeah. right? And there is loan stacking. So sometimes, even within the same provider, they might not have single customer view to see how many accounts do they have. Some of the accounts actually go up to 30 accounts in a... 12 months period, which sometimes, you know, that is when it starts getting risky and when the ticket size starts going from 200 pounds of a pair of jeans to a thousand pounds of sofa. That's, so, that's, yeah. that's an in, in, entire, entirely different yeah. um, ballpark, isn't it? All right, you, you keep talking about education. Uh, whose responsibility? All of us. <laughs> that, 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 is, that is a good answer. <laughs> but, uh, you know, who, who needs to take the lead on this, Shell? Oh, as I, I think all of us is the right answer because, you know, even when we think about our products and solutions, we think of it from consumers' point of view because that is how we're enabling our customers to serve the needs of the consumers, right? So we do need to think about it as to are consumers aware of it? What do they think of it when they think of buy now, pay later, that they can split their payment, but what does it mean if they're not able to pay it in time? And that's why it's really, really important that they understand what is a credit score what does it entail? What are the different actions that they take and what impact is it going to have mm. at them? And we're completely aware that people are not going to just, their objective is not to have a higher credit score. It is to get that car or to buy that home. And means of having good credit and good payment behavior is a way to get to that home and, and car faster. Mm. And just to plug our product that David referenced, the, the Credit View solution is squarely um, helping uh, consumers educate them simulate how they can get their life goal of a house or the car um, and that's working really well and industry uh, award winning so we've got a part to play as a credit reference agency lenders have a part to play which i'm, I'm sure simon will have a few on um, and there is really everyone to help educate there was i think there was a bit of a wry smile there absolute part to play in the education as well simon yeah no 100 percent um and, and there's a lot of um, upcoming regulation that we're we're starting to you know look at and consider um, 
that places a actually much higher burden on on lenders to to take a bigger duty and a bigger role in presenting propositions to customers that we know are the right value and the best value for them uh, and to take actually a bit more responsibility off the consumer's hands and put a bit more into the into the, the hands of the lenders. I think one of the other things, and um, I think it was mentioned in the opening piece actually around uh, around some work TransUnion had done, was is, is banks and credit reference agencies and all financial institutions actually working with, um, you know, schools and, and younger people as well, because we can see now with the the explosion of buy now, pay later, it, it does trend more to the, the younger um, borrowers. And we need to think about the next generations and how we equip them to, to understand what they're what they're getting themselves into and what borrowing and lending and interest, et cetera, is. So I think there's a, a duty on us to present um, solutions to customers that are good value and where we've done a lot of the thinking for them, but also a, a duty on us all to think about the next group of, of borrowers and how we set them up for success. Mm. Um, do get in touch with uh, with your questions, what you would like to ask the panel. Click on the question mark tab on the platform. It's just to the right of the screen where you're watching now. Uh, if you can't if you can't see it, if you minimise the screen, you'll see the question mark. Uh, so you can send questions that way or indeed in, uh, in the chat and through the use of emojis as well when there's something uh, that you hear that you particularly like or, or maybe want to hear more about. Um, let's talk about sustainability. That's a huge, huge area. Um, I'm sure if any of us clicked on any new sites today, COP26 will be back in the news again. Not that it has really gone away over the last couple of weeks. Um, it, it, it's a, I was going to call it a trend, but it's entirely incorrect to call it a trend because it, it is here. It is now part of the fabric of our life. Um, customers want to know they are making the right choices. Jonathan, is the industry ready to show and to be part of that decision? I think the industry is still finding its feet in, in many ways. I mean, I, I see, you know, mortgage lenders that are busy getting kind of the, uh, the energy ratings of their properties or what is the flood risk of properties. Or I see, you know, corporate lenders looking more carefully about what the profile of their lending will be. But it's, you know, it, it's still emerging in terms of what people will be required to disclose, you know, how much greenwashing is going on as opposed to genuine yeah. Uh, improvement, I think, is is going to be a, a topic that gets more focus um, in the future. And I think, you know, there are some organisations where it's more natural to think about these things than others. And I think there are there are some organisations, smaller organisations, perhaps with simpler product lines, that are still really trying to look at what the larger organisations are doing and, and distill what is relevant for them. Absolutely. Today. Yeah, because if you're in like uh, the transport sector, if you're in the building sector or, or you know, th those sort of industries, you can very easily either show that you are or are not being sustainable. But this may be a, li a little trickier. So, so how do you do it? So as in, I completely agree with Jonathan. I think the intent is there, but we have some way to go. So if I just look at uh, an indicator, EPC rating, for instance, right? As in the first, I think, challenge we have as an industry is how is it defined? And are we measuring it the right way? And then the second one would be now, once we have this measure, if it's correct, then how do we use it? in our lending, if at all, what does that mean? Our pricing decisions. So there are some organizations that have the intent, they are using, some of those are using in pricing, not in decisioning yet, uh, but there is a long way to go. Uh, so there is, there, there's still lack of consistency in terms of how this data is available, uh, but I think there is definitely a very positive and strong intent behind it. Mm. 
Sam, would you agree? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, you've only got to look at um, all of the, the major banks when they release their quarterly um, results announcements. ESG is kind of slides two to four. Um, it's high priority, not just for the major lenders across the industries. So I think we've got, there's the consumer angle, there's the corporate angle of how to actually make mm -hmm. their businesses kind of net zero or aim to net zero. And then there's clearly the government as well. Um, Arguably, this is all too little, too late, given where we are. Um, but I think as a collective, we everyone has a responsibility to be um, challenging employers, um, challenge, challenging the banks, challenging the governments, uh, challenging everyone, really, to say, OK, what are you doing with, in this space? And it can't just be lip service. No, absolutely not. And that was to your point straight off, Jonathan. It cannot be seen as greenwashing. And actually, mm -hmm. you have customers now who are just like spot greenwashing a mile off. Yes. It's just, don't, don't give me that. Give me the, the, the real hard facts. What's the view from Barclay Card on this one, Simon? So I think it's a really interesting point from a consumer lending uh, perspective. And what will be really interesting is how, how much do we drive versus how much does consumer demand uh, and change in demand for sustainability drive? So we think about, you know, we're trying to, to, to drive and help promote a travel recovery, for example, actually, do we need to think differently and, and will consumers think differently? Do we need to think about promotional offers for electric vehicle chargers, for, you know, financing of electric vehicles, for, for you know, more sustainable, more green travel methods? So we will have to have a really good think uh, internally and, and, and some of it will be led by us and some of it will be customer-led as to how do we move away from incentivizing of less sustainable spending and, and incentivize more green spending and more, more sustainable and more environmentally sustainable spending. It will be a, a really interesting area to watch, I think, over the next few years as to who, who pushes that and who pulls that demand. Mm. But I mean, we, we've heard, I mean, coming out of COP26, the, the view from Rishi Sunak that actually uh, the, the money markets, the investors, the, uh, those who can make the decisions should be looking at projects, at companies at um, ideas that are aiming towards net zero. And actually, so right from the start of the money chain, that's where it should be. Yeah, agreed. And it's just, I think it's about how bold we are in, in, in what we do. I mean, we, you know, we've made a lot of changes internally, things like sustainable cards and, and stuff like that. But actually, you're absolutely right. The the funding and the promotion of sustainable spending, sustainable technologies, sustainable transport, that's something that I think we've got a huge responsibility to help drive. Um, and that, you know, that will come from us. We need to make it cheaper for people to buy environmentally friendly and, and sustainable goods. Uh, fundamentally, it's got to, we've got to take a, a role in that. I completely agree. Yeah. Do you think the industry is bold enough, Jonathan? I think it will become bolder as both, you know, investor sentiment shifts towards companies that are doing the most in this area, but also, you know, there will be consumer pull. You know, I was thinking about the, the, the comment about spending on credit cards, but there's also the investment that the people are going to do in their homes to make them more energy efficient. Yeah. And whether that's the mortgage companies or other forms of lending to support that, you know, there will be business opportunities there. Uh, for for people that are brave enough to follow them, and but think, it has to be drawn. I think by you know there's got to be a demand there in the first place, and I think we'll see more of that, yeah. perhaps assisted with with greater reg and tighter regulation. 
And I think on top of the uh, consumers, um, you're also going to have the employees driving this because when you look at that war for talent um, and how you attract and retain the right people, um, a lot of focus is... There was global mobility a few years ago. Um, since that, a lot of focus has been on well-being um, and also what is that company, what's the ethos of that company, what's their purpose and um, is that company that... Gen Z are looking to work in. Yeah, absolutely. Tell you what, we'll, we'll come on to that war on talent in just a moment because it's a fascinating area of how you get that next generation with, with all the ideas coming forward. But just as a final point on this one, can you ever imagine a market where a consumer gets a better rate if they buy a pair of trainers that are made from sustainable goods rather than the pair of trainers that, that are not? So literally, it comes down to the buying choice of what your, your product will, will do for you. So it could, in the long run, be cheaper if the company can see that you're making a sustainable choice. I'd, I'd hope that we could get there. Yes, I, no? I, I can see it. I think step one is to make sure that the price point of the environmentally friendly trainers is there because a lot of consumers will just look at the price of goods in terms of making that, that decision. But absolutely, I think you, know, you, you could see a world where there are beneficial interest rates, promotional offers, you know, all sorts of additional value-added benefits to support the, uh, the, the move to a greener economy. Do you think it's possible, Shell? It, it is, and it's interesting, actually, the consumer, the younger ones especially, are ready to pay a premium if yeah. it's a sustainable supply chain, right? So, so that's the pull from consumers. But at the same time, if you can match it with supply, I think that would be uh, golden. Yeah, I, I mean, what sort of timescale are you thinking <laughs> about that one? I know that's really tricky, but, you know, we're hearing all the time that things are not moving quick enough and we, we need to be bold, we need to do this. So what, what, what is the timescale? I'm going to say that eight, 18 months to two years. So there, there could well be a product that will, some, will track that. Yeah, I can see some financial products being in, launched in market, to, to Jonathan's point, around more attractive interest rates if, you're, if you've got the right investment into your home to make it more sustainable, for example. Yeah, so maybe you're on those bigger ticket items that's easier to track. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the traceability of what trainers you're buying is always going to be tricky. I mean, do you see this, Simon? I think you're, you're mentioning, you know, better deals on electric cars and, and that sort of infrastructure. Do you see this coming within the next 18 months? Yes, I, but I completely agree with Jonathan. I think there's, a, a, there's going to have to be a big area of government intervention here as well. We've seen this a few years ago with you know, conversations around you know, food, for example. Uh, a, a battery chicken is still a lot cheaper to buy than a free-range chicken. So you're, you're cutting a massive part of the population out all the time that sustainable goods are more expensive than than less sustainable goods. So I think banks will absolutely have to adapt and evolve and do their bit. I think that the piece around, you know, cheaper funding for green homes, green mortgages, for things like, you know, heat pumps, replacing central heating, that's an absolute must and that will undoubtedly come. But I think the everyday consumer goods side of it is going to have to be quite government-led, I would say. This leads us really nicely on to, uh, to another question that, that I have here. Given the rise of digital wallets and super apps, do you think that this is perhaps just creating a single point of vulnerability for so much personal and financial information? You throw it all in one place and there it is. You know, it, it is just that vulnerable one single point. You lose your phone, you get hacked, what, 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 whatever it is. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think this, this is a security piece that comes in. Yeah. Like if you are to put your whole life story <laughs> into one app for risk of that um, getting breached and suddenly all of that information getting onto the dark web and, and getting in the hands of, of the bad people, then, um, yeah, I think there's, there'll be a lot of nervousness. Um, personally, I try and keep things in different places um, rather than rely on one app. I, and we, we toyed with this uh, when I was consulting for a fintech a few years ago as to how um, should there be, should they aim to have this one kind of money management app um, all encompassing, but actually it was decided not to bring everything all together and just focus on a few different areas. Was that because they couldn't ensure that it would be secure? Obviously, I don't want you to name the organisation, no, but or was it because they thought consumers wouldn't go it's, for it's it? It's more consumers, and, right. and it, ultimately the, the user journey would be really clunky because you'd kind of have everything, but you'd have roots off, and it would just yeah. get quite confusing. For It's not to say we won't get there. I think there, there could be a, a space, where, again, going back to the Gen Z might be looking for a convenience of one app um, and trust apps a bit more than the older generations who need a bit more education. We, we've talked over you know, the last few minutes uh, in so many different cases of, of the, the challenges within the industry and, and the different things, but what would you say the biggest challenge to growth for this industry? Positive growth, and I don't necessarily just mean financial growth, but, but growth within the sector that, we, that, you know, that, that, that everyone, all, all clients will, will want to see. Jonathan, the biggest challenge for the next 12, 18 months? I think there's still a degree of economic uncertainty. Um, you know, higher inflation, squeeze on 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 income. So the, there's that side, and I, you know, the other one I would throw out there is you know the the regulatory goalposts continue to uh, advance in terms of you know whether that's um, you know conduct risk the uh, uh, and and keeping up or ahead of regulation is another challenge. Okay, so personal finance costs, as in cost of living and the the environment people are living within, and the regulation. Yeah. As, as well. Yeah, and in fact, let me refer back to because Simon is here in the panel that there was a, I think, a consumer poll survey done by Barclays and nine out of 10 consumers are worried about rising interest rates as well as inflation and rising cost of living. So there is uncertainty about all those things and we're yet to see how it's going to pan out. As in, we've been increasing forecast for our inflation rate. Now we think it's going to be 5% and then it'll come down and we all think it's all temporary and hopefully it is, but it's yet to be seen. Yeah, and, and you know anyone who reads the news will know that. Okay, yeah, you read the news in the UK, but you look across at the USA, and they've got what the highest inflation rate for some thirty years. Thirteen, yeah, now. years, yeah. Um, and, and so that will sort of you know be feeding into into, into people's sort of uh, you know wider view there. Biggest priority, biggest challenge. Yeah, look, I, I agree with them. I think for me, it's just as well is this pent up demand that's just being. Uh, kind of the wash up from the last 18 months or is and actually then are we going to kind of run out of growth um, and actually linked to that is the supply chain and whilst, whilst there is demand in the market can supply keep up even things like the chips in cars um, which is causing big angst in, in the auto market at the moment so people want to go out and spend but actually are they able to can they and then therefore is that going to cause some stumbles in in the path to growth and nobody's even mentioned christmas with supply no. supply chains no. for, for, for christmas as well <laughs> toys in the shops etc etc food on the shelves um simon uh the uh, the biggest risk that you see if you're lo looking ahead the next 12 to 18 months um I think the biggest risk is that the businesses don't adapt to, to the changing consumer demand and, and regulation. I think 
we have to accept that individual products will probably be slightly lower returning than they used to be because we need to we need to be more mindful of affordability. So then it's about deepening relationships, um, widening product holdings, and trying to get you know all of our products working for the customers and in their best interests. Um, I think that's the key area for growth but also the key risk if, if banks and businesses don't adapt quickly enough yeah it's it's managing and balancing that as well um thank you so much for all your your views and your thoughts your your predictions your slight swerve of a prediction but that's all right we'll let you off that one simon thank you so much for joining us virtually and here in the studio sam shale and jonathan thank you very much thanks for listening to the panel discussion Hopefully it gave you some insights into the topics and trends we believe will be important in the coming years. You can discover videos and further content from our summit on our website, www.transunion.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow TransUnion on your favourite podcast platform. Connect with us on social and continue to check out our website for more great content. Thank you. This podcast was produced by TransUnion, a global insights and analytics company. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of TransUnion, and TransUnion is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast.